0: Tasmania Talks with Mike O'Loughlin, weekday mornings from nine. Meg Webb, independent member for Nelson. Meg, good morning. Good morning to you, Mike, and good
1: morning
0: to your listeners. Now, catching up with you is mainly about a a presser you put out talking uh, about local government looking for, um, actually, um, and then reading, of course, uh, I'll start, I'll, I'll probably start this again, the Legislative Council has voted down a proposal for a review of the impact of compulsory voting in the recent council elections, and you wanted that review. Oh, look, that's
1: right, Mike. Look, in a nutshell... I put forward a motion, which we ended up debating yesterday in the Legislative Council. I put forward a motion calling on the local government minister to um, uh, have a comprehensive review undertaken of the recent local government elections, because it was the first time that we had compulsory voting, and, and I think it really warrants um, a good review to look at lessons learned and, and best information that we can gather from this first instance of it. it was voted um, down. And, yeah, we, look, it's really funny, Mike. Parliament's a funny place, must I, might I say. Oh, well, Here's we tend I, to all
0: agree with you on that one.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I put forward a motion that said, called on the Minister to have some form of comprehensive review. It didn't dictate what it should be, but that it did say it should involve some community consultation so people had a chance to share their experiences and raise any issues or um, learnings that they had from it, but included consultation with the local government sector itself. Um, that was appropriately funded in case it needed some additional funding to be undertaken a, a good thorough review sometimes needs some extra funding and i said that it should be on top of what we normally get so after every local government election the tasmanian electoral commission puts out a report that's got all the data in it all the the facts and figures the numbers about who voted and percentages of this that and the other um and the logistics of the election so that that happens every time and that's really valuable and good so this was to say in addition to that let's have a more thorough look at this how compulsory voting went first time around.
0: It is interesting yeah, it is. when you wrote that the government's... Uh, ..the bill to introduce compulsory voting in this year's elections was uh, abruptly completed in 10 calendar days earlier this year. That's a world record.
1: Yeah, look, that's really quick, isn't it? Especially for something so fundamental as changing something about our, our democratic architecture, you know, the way we vote in local councils. And I'm not against that necessarily uh, in terms of the compulsory voting, but we could, I think, all agree that, that the bill got rushed through Parliament back in June, right in the middle of the budget sessions. Yep. The Minister admitted that there had been no effective consultation prior to it coming. It came out of the blue, really. So the sector, the local government sector, hadn't been consulted. the broader community hadn't been... Came through Parliament very quickly. And then before we know it, we've got the first set of elections with the compulsory voting. Now, all of that happened, and that's fine. But what would be really sensible is to have a good, close look at it and say, well, what can we learn from this first time so that we're really well set up for next time. There might be some things we need to consider that didn't get considered in that really tight time frame and, and that rush. Now the weird thing is, when we debated it yesterday in the upper house, Mike, um, everyone who spoke on it from the government, the, the Labor opposition and the, some other independent members, everyone agreed that, that a, a review is a really good idea and that would be really valuable to learn lessons from this first instance and take them forward to the next time. And the government has even confirmed, and the minister put out a a media release afterwards to confirm, that that he's actually asking for a a broader review to occur. He's asking the Electoral Commission to do that. So on top of what they normally do, crunching the numbers, to do a review more broadly that would involve public consultation, that would involve um, consulting with the local government sector. And he confirmed that there'd be additional funding for it if necessary, so all these things that were in my motion, the government's confirmed that they're mm. actually going to do, <laughs> um, and yet they voted against my motion. So there you go. In the big scheme of things, the good the the good outcome is we, we had a good, clear talk about it in Parliament on the record. The government has made a commitment to doing a broader review of this um, most recent election from the local government where we had the compulsory voting. And I think that that will be a really valuable experience um, and... and draw on some really good lessons learned. I, I suspect there's some things we're going to want to tweak about compulsory voting at local government level going forward and I think this will be a good way to sort of point us in the right direction
0: for that. And I know local government Minister next Street, hasn't he said he's open to discussing the introduction of an in person poll day for local government elections. How do you feel about the in person poll day? I, um, I, I would rather, I, I like the idea of the postal I don't mind it being compulsory but I don't want to go to another uh, in person poll day myself.
1: Yeah, well, here's what I'd, I had a bit of a look around the other states to see what the other states that have compulsory voting at a local government election, how do they do this? And the funny thing is, um, for all of the others that have compulsory voting at local government, they actually have a mixed model where they have a postal option but they also hold an in person on the day opportunity um, for people, like on a Saturday, a particular Saturday, where you can roll up to a polling station and do uh, your vote there. And I think a mixed model probably works really well.
0: I, think, it, I think that would be a great voting. idea.
1: I think so too, because postal voting is very convenient for a lot of people, and a lot of people would choose to do that. That's fine. But what I heard, some of the feedback I heard, was around the fact that there's often some problems with ballot papers being posted out. Sometimes they don't arrive, sometimes they go to the wrong spot. Um, And and what I heard is that people who had to go and get replacement ballot papers, because theirs hadn't arrived or whatever, found it very difficult to do that, because you had to go and get it in person, say from your council chamber or from the Electoral Commission, during business hours, and you had to, um, you, you couldn't like have your partner go and pick it up when they pick theirs up or whatever. You had to be there in person, and that was quite inconvenient for people during business hours. So, if there'd been, a, say, a Saturday polling day, I think those people would have been quite happy to rock up on a, to a polling station and do it then. Um, if their postal hadn't arrived.
0: I know it's interesting, Meg, that uh, I know that independent member Christy Johnston has said the uneven mm. delivery of ballots caused a lot of confusion among her constituents and possibly contributed to the voter turnout rate of under 85% and said the mandatory state and federal elections averaged over 92% turnout. And she then does go on to say uh, the local government postal ballot have to suffer the vagaries of Australia Post, which only commits yes. to uh, mail delivery times of up to four business days. And so she says, how many uh, world ballots arrived after closing time? I mean, very good point. Look, I
1: think that's true. But look, a couple of things I'd say about that. One is that the fact that we got close to an 85% return rate across the state for the local government elections this time round was, was a really outstanding result. It was a big bump up from what we had when it wasn't compulsory. It was the first time we've done we've done the compulsory um, version, and and it was really good result. There's of course room for improvement, and we would like to see it come up even higher. I, I agree. I think I think a model where we might look at a mixture of postal and a polling day opportunity um, could help us just get up higher above that ninety percent that we see when we have a state election well, or a federal election
0: in 2018. Um, but,
1: but I'd also say Australia Post, you know. They're operating under constrained circumstances. And yes, there are limitations to the service they provide, and it is tricky if we um, kind of put this very key aspect of our democracy rests on their shoulders. It's a it's a lot of pressure. So I think um, it makes sense to have a mixed model.
0: And uh, two thousand eighteen, voted turnout was fifty eight percent. Two thousand fourteen, mm. it was under fifty five percent. I look. I think uh, that idea is great if it's you can, yeah the the choice. Something else uh, yeah. I wouldn't mind uh, asking you about uh, in regard to uh, fish farming. You've called um, some back in October, I'd love to know how that's gone for you, calling on the Rockcliffe mm. uh, Government to listen to the call from Tasmanian communities to adopt Recommendation 3 of the Legislative Council inquiry into fin fish farming.
1: Yes, yeah, so just some background to that, Mike. I was um, Chair of the Committee of Inquiry in the Upper House that looked at fin fish farming regulation, and we did a big long inquiry and and put our report out uh, in May this year. Uh, and and one of the recommendations in that report um, that that came out of considering all the, the evidence that was brought forward, one of the recommendations was acknowledging that everyone agrees the future of fish farming is offshore or land based. Acknowledging that that's well accepted, the government, the Tasmanian government, has an opportunity to make a plan with industry, with community, to move away from the inshore farming that we have now. So as we look to the future and plan to move more offshore and to move potentially to land base, we should be looking at reducing those inshore farming areas because we know those are the ones that cause the most consternation for people. Those are the areas where people have identified a really significant environmental impact where you've got say locals down at the Long Bay area around Port Arthur, you've got locals there who are really concerned about the intensity of the fish fish farming that's occurring there, the impact it's having on the local environment, the algae problems and things like Mm. that, the fact that it's right near key tourist destinations for our state and that there's potentially an impact on people's enjoyment of those areas. Um, I think these are all good indications that we could be looking ahead and planning for how we move yeah. away from those inshore areas.
0: I'm speaking with independent member for Nelson Meg Webb. And Meg, you've put an interesting uh, comment on your uh, press release about fish farms. The government seems stuck in cheerleader mode for the salmon industry. That kind of says it all, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Oh, look, that, I guess that's a bit of a cheeky line, really. Um, oh, do you think? The, the, rea- <laughs> the reality, here's the reality. Primarily for an industry, um, the fin fish farming industry, they're operating in public waterways. And primarily the government's role has to be to be effective regulators of that industry on behalf of the community because it's occurring in public waterways and and we know that there's lots of ways as a community that we enjoy and use and value those public waterways. So the first thing we should expect of the government is to be really effective uh, and strong regulators to make sure that we protect those areas as, as appropriately as possible. The second thing the government should be, I think, well behind being good, strong regulators is supporters of the industry. And I get a bit worried that we've got that the other way around, that we're a bit topsy-turvy there. And the government sees as its first responsibility to be promoters and cheerleaders for the industry and puts the strong regulation second. And that, that concerns me. Um, I think the government needs to be putting the community first here. Um, not necessarily the industry first. And I don't think that it has to be a a competition. I think we could potentially have a really strong, vibrant industry um, while also being a good, strong regulator and protecting things that community values. So,
0: Meg, the government needs to introduce a plan to reduce farming operations in inshore-sensitive and biodiverse areas.
1: Yeah, and those are some of the areas, particularly around the south of the state, um, where people have identified significant environmental impacts um, and really detrimental ones and there's no reason that we need to stay in those areas I think if those areas came up today and and they, there was no fish, fin fish farming there yet but people came forward and and proposed to put mm. fin fish farms into those areas today we would say no you know, the, the, what we know now and the regulations we have now I think wouldn't let those areas through they're there because they were mm. historically there from times past when when regulation was different and when the industry was quite different too much, much uh smaller scale and and different in its technology and its intensity um so i think that we should be considering moving away from those areas i think it's good for our local communities there it's good for the environment there and it's potentially good for other associated industries say like the tourism industry um which is located really proximate and close by in many
0: instances and uh, meg i know you've got to go uh quick uh, update on pokies your thoughts
1: well, we've seen this um, commitment from the government announced a couple of months ago now about um, bringing in, in 2024, uh, a card to yep. use to operate poker machines and that that's going to assist people with um, keeping a track of and, and monitoring how much they are losing to poker machines. And that's a really effective idea. Lots of the detail of that is yet to be um, revealed or determined. So I'm really interested to continue to talk with government about that and talk with the Um, Gaming Commission about their plans around that. Um, I hope we come up with a really great model similar maybe to the one that's in Norway which is an effective model of that kind Um, that that doesn't really impact recreational users of poker machines. It it doesn't impact the experience of using a poker machine recreationally but for somebody who's addicted to poker machines and got a problem controlling how they use poker machines, these cards can be really effective. So um, I'm really keen to see that. I understand it will take a while for us to nut it out and to get it implemented. Um, but but on, in the long run, it's going to be a really positive development for the state.
0: Interesting. And I know you've got to go, but I appreciate your time this morning. Meg, Meg mm-hmm. Webb, independent member for Nelson. I look forward to our next chat.
1: Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you
0: and have a great day. You too. Thank you, Meg. Any comments, feel free. 1-300-0010-12, text 044-830-1012 with Tasmania Talks. Tasmania Talks with Mike O'Loughlin, weekday mornings from 9.